Welcome back to the 230th episode of the Daily Flip Podcast. I'm your host, Alex, and today we're going to be flipping through some of the top stories, including how China is involved with getting that fentanyl across our U.S. border and helping the drug cartels do it. A interesting article talking about how purpose has become misguided, or at least giving us an example of how we have a misdefined purpose in the United States, and a interesting one talking about a statue going up at the University of Houston that is uh, not the most friendly to a certain point of view, let's put it that way. And of course, we will end today with our daily delight, a story meant to leave you feeling positive, ready to take on the day. Now, that's enough rambling for me, let's jump in to our daily debate. So have you personally been affected with the fentanyl crisis? Has anybody that you know, have you yourself been a person who has taken the drug or had to deal with the repercussions of having so much of this drug funneled into America? Or do you live in one of the communities that is wrecked by it? I want to hear the opinions of people. I want to hear how it's affected you because you hear a lot about it on the news, but that doesn't mean that you necessarily hear all of those personal stories. And normally they're just talking points from one side or the other about it. I want to hear your side. I want to hear the human side. I want to hear other people's experiences because, you know, mine has not been the most fun and I'm pretty sure it's that way for other people, but maybe you could just project it out there and tell some people what you think, how it affects you. So let's jump into our first article with the headline that reads, How China is flooding America with fentanyl on purpose to undermine our society. And the article comes from the New York Post. And the author is talking about a gentleman who is actually writing a new uh, book by Peter... Sorry, the gentleman writing the book is Peter Schwitzer, I believe is how you pronounce his name. Uh, Schwitzer, maybe. I could be totally wrong on the pronunciation there. But the point he's trying to get across is that this is actually... Semi-intentional. Now, am I saying that the, or is the author saying, that the Chinese government is there like, ah, yes, we will send the fentanyl over to the United States to undermine them? No, but they definitely remember the opiate war where uh, Britain did actually get the people and the populace of China uh, addicted to opium. They used it as a sort of societal degradation weapon, so to speak. And when you put it in that context, you can kind of understand why some officials want to call it a weapon of mass destruction because some of the important chemicals that go into the drug are produced in China. Some of the other raw materials are produced in China. And the triads there, they're working without any sort of criticism from the government and they're shipping it over to the cartels. The cartels are producing it. Even some of the triad members are, they're producing it on the ground or they're making a network here in the United States to distribute the fentanyl. And yes, it it could just be all motivated by money. But even then, after the United States has called this out, they've tried to prosecute certain people that would be involved in this process that are Chinese citizens. And they've tried to actually get uh, extradition for the citizens to charge them in the United States, China's like, nah, we're not going to do anything. We're not going to crack down on this person. We're not going to send them over to you to jail them. And also, we're not going to crack down on this problem, which you've obviously illustrated exists. So even if they're not intentionally doing it, and the people that are involved in this process are doing it purely for the money, the Chinese government may see it as an opportunity to limit our capacity to respond if anything was to happen. So let's jump to one of the first quotes from 
the article, or at least one of the most important sections, the production of the basic chemicals. Quote, most of the pharmacological ingredients needed to produce the synthetic cocktail known as fentanyl are produced in China, in the nor- northern city of Xinjiang. I'm sorry for mispronouncing that. West of Beijing. Chemical companies churn out such ingredients. A highly militarized city boasting some 11 military facilities, including several command schools, military hospitals, medical facilities, and also a government-designed national development zone. So the companies producing the fentanyl chemicals get tax credits. Some 40% of the reproduction, uh, the production of this chemical come from this city alone. Wuhan, now synonymous with the COVID-19 disease is another big production center of fentanyl components. And it's interesting that, yes, these companies that are producing these different elements that could be used for fentanyl are getting tax breaks. Now, to be clear, there are plenty of other uses for chemicals that are being put into fentanyl. So, of course, you could get a tax break. It just happens to be that they, this one company is in a tax break zone, which once again makes it more, it makes it appear as if the government is more for this. I think that one's more of a coincidence that it happens to be in the particular zone. But I do find it very important that the chemicals are being produced in China and they are being shipped to Mexico from there. And you may be saying, well, Alex, wait, hold on. The triad can find a way to get the chemicals and they're just finding it in Beijing because it's local production. They know the area or close to Beijing in this town that I can't actually pronounce. (laughs) They find it there and they're able to talk to some of their friends or they're able to talk to people they know or the community that they have there in the city and then smuggle some off. So it doesn't necessarily mean anything. But my point being, if you know that these chemicals can be used for fentanyl, and you know that the triad is using them to send over to Mexico to produce fentanyl, the United States has broached this issue with you, and yet you don't put in some sort of extra regulations, you don't try to take a closer look, and this is the part of the Chinese government here, I'm saying they're not choosing to investigate these production plants, these production facilities more rigorously, then they are actually abetting it. They are saying, oh, well, okay, we know some of it's getting skimmed off the top, or at least we've heard reports, which maybe we should take seriously, but no, it's kind of undermining America, so we're going to let it slide. We also don't want to forget the part where basically any company in China has to cooperate with the Chinese government. And let's be clear, I'm not saying that they're full-fledged Communist Party entities, but most of them have at least an officer or two, maybe even a whole department that is directed by people who are part of the Communist Party. There's definitely ties between all the businesses, the like think about Tencent. Tencent has to report to China. In theory, China could harvest all the data of Tencent if they wanted to, simply because of the laws or the nature of the uh, existence between the government and corporations over there in China. So they could very easily look through their books and see where this is going and saying, oh, triad company number A interesting oh okay so you're sending the money to the triad we're going to shut that down but they or the chemicals to the triad but they choose not to so what's the next step what goes on after this it's in china and then somehow the drugs get to mexico what happens when it's in mexico near mexico or near the u.s border quote the chinese triads 
began forging relationships with the Mexican drug cartel and quickly becoming business partners with them. The cartels started to mix fentanyl with their heroin. Fentanyl production proved to be so lucrative that El Chapo, the infamous head of the Sinaloa cartel, quickly shifted from producing heroin and cocaine to fentanyl. A similar operation, but a smaller scale, occurred north of the border in China. Chinese triads established laboratories along the U.S. border in British Columbia to produce fentanyl in Canada and smuggle it into the United States and ship it abroad. So you can see here, the triads are building out their network. They're partnering with all these different... I don't know crime families, all these different cartels, all these different groups that benefit off of selling drugs to addicted people about, they benefit from getting these drugs into the U.S. market because we're people who have, one, recently dealt with an opioid epidemic, so there's a certain segment of the population that could be, uh, what's the word I'm looking for here, a population that would be predisposed to using it, and we also have a, a good chunk of spare cash flowing around and a little bit of extra money so they can sell their product at a little bit higher of a rate. If they were doing it in another country, that would not necessarily be the case. And if you want to be cynical, the triads are getting the go-ahead from the Chinese government to say, hey, um, yeah, yeah, keep selling it to the United States. Make more and more of their people uneligible and unable to go about normal life, to be happy and satisfied, to be able to work for the military, so on and so forth. And then the author goes on to talk about how the distribution ring works, which I'll just be honest, it's interesting, but it is just a whole bunch of different uh, triad officials going around and building out networks in certain locations. There are a few like large businesses that were actually active within the United States that would ship in products from a few different locations and have fentanyl stored within it. And there's one or two cases of that that the author likes to highlight. And I think that's uh, important, but I, I don't necessarily think that we need to spend the most time on that one. And then it also talks about how they launder the money. Once again, I think it's interesting, but I don't think it's the most needed thing to focus on. The last quote that I really wanted to give here was the from a section called Facilitation of Communication Networks Used by the Cartels to Operate Without Detection in the United States. I personally found this extremely fascinating because that was always one of the things I asked or wondered about cartels and how they operated without having some of their information intercepted. There's also the idea of using apps like Signal, or in this case, they're using WeChat, because at the end of the day, the Chinese government has the ultimate authority over WeChat. They can tell the companies that operate it what to ban, what not to ban, and they've decided not to ban this type of material. They allow it to just be out and out and obvious what these triad leaders and what these other groups are doing. Quote, mass production and distribution of sales of fentanyl in the United States require a secure means of communication to circumvent surveillance by U.S. law enforcement. Enter a Canadian company called Phantom Secure, which advertised a completely secure communications technology, a cartel favorite for years. Phantom Secure offered custom modified mobile devices such as Blackberries and smartphones, plus a service to delete all data in the events of the user's arrest. And how could they guarantee that that was going to be the case? Well, they actually sent over the data to places like Panama and 
There was also uh, Hong Kong, which is now China-controlled, where they wouldn't actually have to give over that information. And then they go on to say, quote, Chinese organized crime figures involved in the drug trade also speak openly on WeChat, a Chinese messaging app. WeChat is operated and owned by Tencent, a Chinese tech firm with close ties to the Chinese military and intelligence services. The Chinese government regularly monitors the app to suppress political dissent. But when it comes to drug trade chatter, it looks the other way. So you can see here, you can see all of these different factors adding up where maybe, maybe in the best of worlds, they, the Chinese government is just ignorant. I highly doubt that. And there's a repeat pattern of we know that this activity is happening, but we are going to avoid honing in on it, focusing on it, so on and so forth. We've seen this over and over and over. And this is the, the specialty of these triads. This is like their bread and butter now, giving money to the cartels. And let's be clear, there's lots of other services and drugs that they could sell in China. But this is a, a breadwinning market over here. You have the cartels that they constantly want to shove fentanyl into the United States as well as through Southern America. And you have an easy, already set up production process. You're already so entangled with them that you have your own pill-producing locations within the Mexican border in Canada and you're funneling into the United States. You already have your own network just like the cartels do in the United States. So it's kind of creating a symbiotic relationship here. And once again, the Chinese government is looking at it and saying, hey, yeah, um, just... Yeah, don't don't get caught. Like we're not gonna do anything about it. And even if you do get caught, it, you know, and you somehow make it back to China, we're not gonna extradite you. Uh, but we can't protect you on U.S. soil. So like, eh, you just be careful. You know what I'm saying? Like, if you slowly undermine their society, we're not gonna cry about it. We're also not gonna stop it. So it is the use of ignorance as drug warfare, so to speak. And the author does mention, like I said earlier, the Opium War, where they learned their lesson that their population and society was undermined by the opium that was being brought in by the British. Some people say wasn't necessarily the most intent thing in the world, but other people say it was the exact same idea, where the British government knew that it was happening, and yet they didn't fully stop it because they didn't care about the people in the other society. And let's be clear. I don't think it's Britain's job to worry as much about the Chinese people as it does its own people. I do not think it's China's job to think about our people here in the United States more than their people there in China. But I do believe that we need to put pressure on them in order to stop harming our people, in order to limit the amount of triad activity, in order to limit the amount of chemicals that are being sent over here, and... Yes, selfish. It's our selfish intent. We need to call them out. We need to make sure that they are aware of what their ignorance is causing, but also so that we call them out on the international stage and say, hey, you're facilitating this. And the irony is, if our nation falls, if our nation, our market falls, it's not like they're going to instantly pivot back to China. The triads will have plenty of other locations to sell their drug. But guess what? Eventually, I think eventually the rot will turn inward and you'll see a huge crisis of fentanyl use within China, even though they're very authoritarian and they're going to crack down on it. And I think you reap what you sow because also, guess what? Then again, Britain didn't have the worst opium 
epidemic after they had uh, dealt with China in the Opium War. But there was definitely a scourge of opium across a lot of colonies. And even in Europe, it became a lot more popular. And before it was uh, seen as socially unacceptable. In let's be clear, it was always kind of seen as socially unacceptable, but it was a fad there for a little bit. So we'll see. And like I said, the all this extra supply you know, that they have that they've built up over years, if the one place that is currently really driving the demand is out of the way, they may go to easy demand. And now that they know how to produce it, they know how to build out their network. They've already practiced in the United States. Who knows? They may start doing it within their own country as well. So China, just just keep it in mind. Just keep it in mind. If your people are really good and getting really good at distributing things underneath the nose of people, and even if you are an authoritarian country, they may end up doing it to yourself. Like I said, you reap what you sow. But it's just a very important article that I wanted to highlight here because I've talked about China, the threat it poses. I've talked about them bringing fentanyl across the border or at least getting the raw materials to the cartels. And now here's a really in-depth article that can back up what I've been saying and reading for quite some time in a really short, snappy, and sweet conclusion. So let's jump to our second article that comes from Counterpunch with the headline, Struggling to Stay Positive and Productive. And when I first read this, I was like, oh, okay, this is going to be an interesting one. I read the headline. I'm like, okay, let's see what he's getting into. And then he said, because I'm old, basically, I was like, oh, I can't necessarily necessarily relate, but I am interested. So I want to read the first or second paragraph, and I'm going to kind of jump around a little bit. There's a few different parts of the quote that I think are interesting and that I want to highlight. So I am going to grab a little tidbits from each section. Quote, nonetheless, hooray for my good fortune. I've been dancing around at age 77 for a while now. And before I started complaining about aches and pains that came with it, I had to acknowledge, indeed, revere the mere fact of making it this far. The core of this optimism was the mantra that helped me make it through middle age. Be positive and productive. It was my psychological, my spiritual cane. Now, it feels broken. In its place, I seem to have an anti-mantra, which I refer to simply as give up to tude. So that's a, it's an interesting one. It kind of sounds like uh, the seniors when I was in high school or even in college where you kind of get senioritis. And, and I'll be 100% frank, uh, senioritis in high school, I most definitely, I most definitely, quote unquote, felt that. At least I fell into the fad that it was socially acceptable to say, oh, I'm, I'm so done and get frustrated with it. In college, I, I'll be honest, I didn't I didn't hit the same roadblock. A lot of people around me were like, oh, yeah, I just need to skate by on these last few classes, get this like minimum grade and so on. And I was like, no, I, how could you? At that point, I had really shifted my mindset, to be fair. So I had a very different perspective on getting through things, which is I'm, I'm not the best at finishing things the strongest as possible. So I thought to myself, no, hey, you're going to finish strong here. You're not going to give up. You've put in time and effort and money, and you also have a business GPA that you want to keep up and also just a normal GPA that you want to boost while you have the chance and letting it slip that last semester. You know, what's all that hard work going to be for if you just let it go? So I can't necessarily empathize now, but I definitely could have when I was younger about the give up attitude, the, oh, why does it matter? So on and so forth. And this author, 
he, he brings up a very good, interesting point, which is when you get older, when you get to the point where you no longer have a full-time job. And let's be clear, this author does write his weekly column. He mentions that. He also has a book in the works, but he kind of just he kind of just gave up on it. And I think it speaks to the idea that we need purpose. And we're having a crisis of purpose within the United States. And this is not just for people who are beyond their retirement age. This isn't just middle age people as well. This is for young people. And when you hear examples like this of somebody who was able to fight through that middle age and he was saying, yeah, I'm going to stay positive. I am going to stay productive. Like that is quintessentially American optimism in my opinion. Not, oh, hey, I'm going to keep on going through this so I can get to the point where I can get my pension plan. He's not framing it that way, which is maybe how some other countries, some other cultures may think about it. No, he's saying, I'm going to stay positive and the quintessential American word in there is productive. Yes, we love to be a productive society. And as long as we feel like we're doing something, as long as we feel as though we're doing it in a good way, we're adding value to other people's lives, or even just adding value to our own life, that can provide a sense of purpose. And that's what I feel like we're missing nowadays. A lot of people, they do not find something where they can at least add value and do it in an effective way. They feel as though their talents are being misplaced, so on and so forth. There's lots of different examples. And even if they're not using their talents, they're not doing something physical, like blue-collar work, where you can actually see the results of your labor. You know, at the end of the assembly line, you can see that car. You know that you put together part of the engine, you put together part of the brakes, and that car functions because of you. That beautiful Technic machine is driving down the road, is going to service a family, is going to get somebody to work, is possibly going to drive them to the emergency room, or it's going to drive a pregnant mother to a hospital in order to deliver her child. There's a lot of gratification that can come from that. You can feel productive doing it, and then you might feel as though you have a purpose, and we're having a crisis of that. And your purpose does shift during life. There's no doubt about that. When And this is going off of old trends. This is going off of my older sensibilities. So let's be clear. And let's, I'm not old physically. Well, I'm getting there. But it's going off of the old cultural sensibilities that your purpose when you're young is to, to learn, well, one, to grow up and to learn and to understand the society. Uh, at some point, it, especially nowadays, it may not have always been this, but it shifts to being somebody who either is a productive asset, getting a job, working, or going on to college to pursue a degree or to pursue some sort of training certification that adds more value to you so you can work harder and you can make more money, so on and so forth. And then you you really grind it out for the next few years. Those are pretty surface level purposes. And this is where it may divulge a little bit. Some people want to keep on going down that career track. Some people start having kids and they don't just work for themselves anymore. They work for their kids, for their family, so on and so forth. Then you hit the middle age. Some people are still pursuing their careers. They're adding value to other people's lives through their job or they're giving service. They're doing service at the food pantry in order to help others, so on and so forth. But you can see that the the shift is it becomes less about you and it becomes more about others and what you can do to give back. And that's how purpose shifts because 
it, it's a natural thing, in my opinion. When you are the young person in society, in a society, in a tribe, you are more physically strong. You are more able to go for a long period of time doing hard work. And as you get older, you sometimes work a little bit smarter than harder. You can still be physically strong, but not necessarily as much. And when you get to that oldest peak uh, in a tribe, you may not be able to till the ground anymore, but you may be able to spread your wisdom, all the lessons that you've learned, any extra little tidbit that you picked up from the person who taught you, or even just from doing the practice that these young people are now doing. So it becomes less about what I can do to add to the community by my individual labor, but then it becomes what can I share with the people in the community? What can I give to others in order to help the community? So I feel like it's a pretty natural shift in the purpose that you're, we're supposed to have as human beings. And that's why I found this author's article very, very sad, because he only brings up his family once. And it was in the example of going on a bike ride with his family, and then the rest of the story is all about him, how he hurt himself, and how it kind of left him in a place where he feels useless. And that is the really interesting and sad part. It's not that now he's deriving more purpose, more happiness from his family, from spending time with his kids, with his grandkids, trying to give back in that sense, in that fashion. Instead of giving back with his time, he says, oh, I'd give up a toot. I'm just going to play some video games or possibly sit down and write an extra uh, paragraph about my book that I'm probably not going to release because it's not getting done. It is it is sad, and I feel like he doesn't embrace, he took the productive aspect too far, and that is a possibility in American life. We do focus so much on that productivity, on those numbers ticking up, the efficiency. Oh, I was able to produce blank percent more. We become so hyper-focused on that that we lose something that pre-exists even the American ethos, the idea that there's more to life, especially spiritually, but if you don't want to say spiritually, just in providing a better path forward for your community and the people around you, there is that purpose that you serve as you get older. It's not solely about you and what you can do alone. It's about what you can do with the people around you, what you have to rely on other people for, but also what you can make easier with their in their lives by providing them those nuggets of wisdom. And I think that that would be a better approach. Maybe this gentleman will find purpose that way. Maybe he'll shift his point of view and he'll write a book about that. Who knows? But it's very, very interesting to say the least. So let's jump to our last article. It's a very, very short one, but it was a little bit controversial when uh, the University of Houston, quote, adds a pro-abortion statue to campus. And this comes from KTRH iHeartRadio. So when I first read that, I was like, a pro-abortion statue um, at the University of Houston. I am 90% certain that Texas is one of the most uh, pro-life states. Then again, cities, uh, you know, Austin, Houston, even some parts of Dallas, they're, they're lean a little bit more liberal, and college campuses always lean a little bit more liberal, but never did I think that we would be putting up statues of abortions. And to be frank, I don't really care where anybody else stands on this issue. Uh, should you really be praising this process? Because even if you don't believe that the child is a baby, you don't believe that the 
or sorry, inverse, if you don't believe the baby is a child, you believe it's a clump of cells, uh, that is still ending up the potential for, for life. Now, is it 100% guaranteed that they're going to make it through? No. Is it 100% that they're not going to come out deformed? No. But there's definitely the potential for, for life there. And ending that and closing off the possibilities is something that we used to acknowledge as at least sad. So we would at least be sad when people had to get abortions or when they elected to get abortions. The saying was, before my time, to be fair, but you further this talking point, it used to be safe, legal, and rare. And now we're putting up statues that praise abortion. This is the degradation of morals. And I'm not saying that it's a degradation of morals in the right or wrong direction. I'm not going to make that prescriptive claim because... I don't want to deal with the philosophical question that I would have to be fighting back and forth with people on in the comments, okay? So when you hear this and you get angry that I don't necessarily agree with you and you're like, oh, he's just shutting down the debate. No, my point being is it is not prescriptive, it is descriptive. It is a degradation of the current moral system. And it's just interesting to me that we've shifted so much within a generation that we are praising something that we used to, or at least putting a statue up to it. They were going to have a the speaker come and give a ceremony and things of that nature. So I would say that is at least praising it. Uh, we've shifted from thinking it is terrible and horrible and should be done as rare as possible to praising a certain activity. Um, that's just a really fast cultural shift, and I find it absolutely fascinating and a little bit disheartening and sad in this particular case. So I'm going to read one quote here, and then from there, we're going to move on to the daily delight so we can get away from depressing topics. Quote, one once, this was originally announced several months ago, the university claimed that it was not actually coming, said Dr. Sergio. Quote, now the statue is up on campus, unfortunately. It did cancel, they did cancel some celebration events and a speech for the artist. So that's the other wrinkle to it is when people protested that this was going to be put on campus, the university said, no, 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 hey, we're not, we're not going to do it anymore. And then they decided to go forth with it anyway. So uh, an interesting one for there, you know, they may have been gaslit just, just a little bit, but who am I to say? Uh, I'm not the person that is on campus there. Maybe there was a better reason for putting it up. Maybe there was a particular homegrown artist that was trying to say something uh, beautiful with their art, and they decided it trumps any of the traditional points of view or people that may disagree with it on campus. And hey, on college campuses, you got to deal with an abundance of point of views that you don't necessarily agree with. That is the point. You're supposed to confront people that, or not confront, because that makes it sound confrontational. You have to take on and recognize other points of view and allow them to challenge you, push back against you so you can develop further or learn where you're wrong, so on and so forth. That is the entire point of college. So there is a, a interesting, interesting video of a cute dog that we're going to do for our daily delight. And this one comes from uh, Woo Globe. Dog gets fits of zoomies while in the bathtub. Hilarious dog antics. So you know when you pull out the plug or you 
flip the switch that allows the water to drain out of your tub and it starts to swirl. Well, this dog was so entertained. He was like, whoa, whoa, where are you going, dog? Where are you going, water? Where are you going, water? And then he goes to swipe at it and then he hits the plug and the plug starts jumping around kind of like a cat toy. And he's just, he's going ham at it. It is a hilarious video. So if you want to see that video or you want to read any of today's articles, there'll be a link in the description below that like and subscribe button. Also down there, you can find the link to the podcast on Spotify, Pocket Cast, Google Podcast, as well as Podvine. Yes, I'm pretty sure Google Podcast is shut down at this point, but I, it still shows that it's distrib- distributing there. So I'm going to keep saying it until it's completely done and they say my distribution channel is completely closed. But that's besides the point. And you can also find the link to the Twitter down there in the description uh, at your daily flip on Twitter. Yes, I still call it Twitter. And with all that promotional stuff out of the way, there's only one more thing to say. Stay safe. Don't die.